A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Line Trust, specialist fund managers. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Total Football. We have finally begun the long au revoir to Arsene Wenger, who had the honour of announcing his own departure at the end of this season before he was pushed. We'll analyse his 22-year spell in North London and ask what next for Arsenal and possibly more interestingly, what next for Arsene Wenger? Back on the pitch, we have our FA Cup finalists for 2018 with a pair of semi-interesting semi-finals to pick over, as well as a small and fairly well-formed Premier League menu to tuck into. We'll look ahead to a trademark massive European night at Anfield and eine große europäische Nacht in Munich as the Champions League boards the semi-final bus. Plus a trip to the United States to check in on the progress of the footballing Swede making the biggest impact in America since Martin Darlene in 1994. But first, back here in the Telegraph's audio recording facility, I'm joined by our chief sports writer, Paul Hayward. Paul, how are you? Very well, Tom. Good. Glad to hear it. We'll start at Arsenal, where you've spent your Sunday, uh, the beginning of Arsene Wenger's last hurrah. What was the mood like in the ground and uh, on the way to the ground and among the fans? It was completely underwhelming, surprisingly. We all turned up thinking there was going to be an opera, you know, um, uh, violins and roses, and it was anything but. Uh, there were lots of empty seats. There was a sort of apathy in the ground. It felt like a, a nothing game until Arsenal started scoring, and then the crowd became a bit interested, and by the end they were singing There's Only One Arsene Wenger, but they certainly weren't singing that at the start. So no massive appreciation for him when he came out onto the pitch or anything like that? Not at all, no. I, I think you know they may be saving it for later in the season, um, they do have one home game in the Premier League left against Burnley. They've also got this Atletico Madrid a Europa League semi-final to think about. So they may be saving the, um, uh, the the big farewell, but there's no sign of it there yet. After the match, Wenger did not sound in any way ready to leave. Um, he basically criticised the fans before saying that he wasn't criticising the fans. <laughs> Is he going to spoil his own sentimental farewell tour here? It's got to be a very complicated parting. You can see that. The fans are standoffish about it at this stage. And Wenger is, is clearly has these resentments. He has these grudges. We're all convinced that he, he, he jumped before he was pushed. He didn't really want to leave. They were going to replace him in the summer. He didn't want to go out that way. Therefore, he resigned to, to, to head off that 
in dignity. But he was trying to kind of convey these messages in this fascinating 12 minutes we had with him um, without really wanting to, um, you know, sort of turn the turn the boat over. The two things he stood out, said that stood out, Tom, I think, were one, he's going to manage again, not in England because he's got this emotional attachment to Arsenal. And secondly, he feels that the the supporters have, have damaged the standing of the club international internationally. Do you put much stock in that? Do you think he's got a point with that? And and it's a slightly strange thing to care about, isn't it? How the club is viewed in uh, in China compared to what's actually happening in the stadium? Yes, I think that's code really for a lot of these supporters have made my life hell, dragging you know banners behind planes, Wenger out, uh, placards, social media, relentless um, pressure on him. And I think he's, I think he's, I think he's disguising that by saying actually the international standing of of Arsenal in China and America has been damaged. But I think it stems from personal anguish. Clearly, still prioritising the Europa League, but the team selections and performances like the one against West Ham. I know the result was very good, but do they demonstrate the size of the task of whoever comes in as the new manager? Yes, I think this is part of it. the The fans, I think, have now seen beyond him. They they're, they're not they're not fixated with him anymore. They're fixated with the team and how how much it's declined. And when you say to Arsenal fans, well, you know, this could end well. You could beat Atletico Madrid in the semi-finals, go to Lyon and win the Europa League. That's a European trophy. They all say, oh, we're not good enough to beat Atletico Madrid. So there's a fatalism there. And when you watch the team in action, frankly, you can understand it because they have, they have fallen a long way. Do you think ultimately it was the empty seats that did for him? Does it sort of send a message to the owners about the health of the business rather than the, the club? You can weather the anger of fans, but not so much the apathy. Yes, I do think that. I think it spooked the owners because Stan Kroenke, who's a sort of absentee speculator owner, um, wants to protect the value of his asset. And the minute people start turning away from a an entertainment brand as he would see it, then the panic bells start going off. Um, and it's interesting that the intervention came at the point where mass apathy was setting in and, and Arsenal's marketability was declining. It's quite instructive for other upset fans, isn't it? Like if you do stay away, that's how you might actually get things changed at your club. Yes, but don't don't tempt them because there'll be there'll be mass walkouts now. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very bad for the TV pictures. Who are you hearing Arsenal will go for at the moment? And also who do you think would be best for them at this point? Well, I personally think that they need somebody, a, a very hard-edged, experienced um, realist manager who will go in and say half of these players have got to go because the way they've performed over the last couple of years, you couldn't really trust them even if you rated them. You couldn't trust them to give you the level of commitment that you would need to, to get up from sixth position back into the top four. There'll be a temptation, of course, to go for another visionary uh, and to try and find the next Arsene Wenger, maybe take a chance with somebody like Eddie Howe. But They've fallen so far, as I say, that I think they need somebody who's a, who's a really experienced, seasoned manager who says this whole thing needs, you know, scrapping and, and starting again. There's a bit of an arrogance as well in assuming you're going to find the next Wenger, as we saw with United and Moy. Surely they won't be uh, so so silly as to think they can find someone else to do it for 20 years. It just doesn't happen anymore, does it? No, let's face it. They got lucky with Wenger. However clever David, David Dean thinks he is, um, that, that, was a, that was a gamble and it came off. They found a, a brilliant manager. But the idea that there's an Arsene Wenger on every street corner is a myth. Yeah, depends which streets you're uh, operating <laughs> in. Uh, what were your dealings like with Wenger, Paul? Will you, be, will you be sad to see him go? Was he a pleasant person to cover? 
Yes, he was. He was always helpful. Interestingly, he never used addressed journalists by their first name. He kept a distance, but at the same time... Just the surnames? uh, Just no names, in fact. Um, (laughs) uh, He kept a distance, but he gave you just enough. Uh, And he was always... He was very good at deflecting things with humour. He was very wry. You know, you'd get this smile from him, a a sort of wink. He was doing it again today, actually. You know, he was saying um, in in the press conference, he was making jokes about, um, I don't have to die now because I've already seen my obituaries. He's... And in that in that moment when he's under a lot of stress and, and it's a, not, not a very nice day for him, it's incredible that he's able to be humorous and engaging like that. Quite. And we do think he'll be heading abroad for another management job. Does that seem the most likely outcome for him this summer? Yes, definitely. A, a club in France, uh, possibly PSG, possibly Monaco. I, I could also see him, Tom, taking over the France team. If, you know, if, if Didier Deschamps doesn't get France to the final in Russia, which he needs to do to, be, to show any progress there... You could imagine him stepping down and and Wenger taking that as potentially a dream job. Could well be. On to the FA Cup and the 2018 final will be Manchester United against Chelsea. United beating Spurs 2-1 at Wembley. This was a second semi-final defeat from a winning position in as many years for Spurs. They just never looked like coming back to it in the second half after United took the lead. Too narrow. Harry Kane completely marginalised up top. How do they address this? It's interesting that because do you subscribe to this theory that there is some curse hanging over Spurs and it, and it strikes at the end of the season and all their good work comes to naught? Or do you look for more specific reasons why they, their season tends to peter out? You could see the, the, the roots of this in the Manchester City and Brighton games. You could see them going into a bit of a dip. And, uh, you know, given that, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was 50-50 or whether they were going to come out of it against Manchester United. They didn't. They started well and then again petered out. I don't think they should panic because I think they've got a lot of good players and a very good manager. But unfortunately, this, this, this maelstrom starts up and people start saying, see, classic Spurs, they haven't changed. This is what happens. Give up on them. And then, and then the clubs start doing silly things. They need to do sensible things and keep going along the path they're on, I think. Do you think Kane was marked and managed out of this game? Or, or do you think he is struggling a little bit at the moment? That There's a lot of talk that he's been rushed back too quickly from injury. Yes, he's been struggling in the last three games. Uh, I would hesitate to say they've rushed him back because I, and medically I don't think they would dare to do that. But at the same time, he's had these ankle problems on and off for quite a while now. And if there's a doubt in his head and if he's feeling a bit physically vulnerable in some way, then it's going to affect his performance. He's certainly not the, the confident live wire that we've seen, you know, for most of the season. Mm. There's a lot of talk in American sport about championship windows because of the enforced parity. Most teams have only got a short period of time in which they might be realistic contenders. Is Tottenham's championship window closing, do you think? <laughs> uh, Maybe. I think that they, they have to be ruthless, really, and ask themselves whether there are players in that team who are susceptible to pressure at the end of the season or, or whether they're doing something wrong in terms of their, their, their preparation and the way they manage the season and rotating the squad and all those things. But I don't think, I just don't think it's some sort of mythical, historical curse that um, you know, condemns them. Uh, to to never winning anything. No, no, I tend to think those things don't exist. Uh, Some loaded (laughs) comments as well from the manager afterwards uh, saying uh, they'll progress with me or with another manager. Should Tottenham be worried that he might be off this summer? I think they should be more worried that that some of the players will start to think, well, this is as far as we're going to get with this team and uh, we better start chasing the big money. Money's the the real heart of it with Spurs. You know, can those players, are those players earning what they should be earning and will they be tempted to try and find that money elsewhere? 
Manchester United, meanwhile, very tenacious and gritty. Do you think we might have been a little bit more impressed with Man United in another era? Um, has our assessment of football now shifted a bit too far towards the entertainment rather than the results? Maybe. I mean, here's a question that people could debate for hours. Last year, Manchester United won the Europa League and the League Cup. This year, they could well finish second in the Premier League and win the FA Cup. Now, is that progress? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> See, I told you. Uh, I would argue that it is, actually. I think the last season was, was very good. If you win two of the four competitions you enter, you've done pretty well. And this season, if they, um, if they finish second, they will have moved up in the table and won the FA Cup. And, you know, bit by bit, there's more coherence in the team. There are flashes of entertainment, but they're still not really Manchester United, the Manchester United that we know. In the other semi-final, it was Chelsea 2, Southampton 0. Um, Eden Hazard, pretty peripheral for most of the last couple of months. He's said as much himself. Um, very poor as well during uh, the, the title-winning implosion year when, uh, when Leicester won the league and Mourinho left. Um, is it this sort of inconsistency, which is why he's not already at a team like Real Madrid? Possibly. He does have good seasons and bad seasons. And I thought it was significant that he didn't make the PFA Team of the Year as well. For a player of his stature, that's quite painful. And he didn't deserve to make it either. There were other people in front of him, such as um, you know Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva. But he must be looking that, at that and thinking, am I in the right place? Uh, am I making the most of my talent? And Real Madrid, conversely, might be looking at it and thinking, well, would we really get a, a, a reliable, consistent, you know, top-level player week in, week out if we bought him? Mm. Particularly strange position for Mark Hughes at Southampton. His first game in charge was the quarter-final win over Wigan. So he hasn't had a huge amount really to do with this cup run. Do you think he'll be happy to have this distraction eliminated? Because let's face it, they're <laughs> probably not going to win in the final, whether it was Man U or Spurs they were up against. I think that's the only way to look at it, isn't it? I mean, you know, they, they, they can get themselves out of trouble, but... Southampton and Stoke are both stranded. Um, they don't seem to be making any progress. You would expect clubs of that level, sort of mid-level, to start fighting against their fate, wouldn't you, and to start picking up points, but they're just not doing it. Empty seats in the Southampton section as well at Wembley. You really wouldn't know this was a semi for a major tournament. Uh, not much of an atmosphere. Do you think it's time to have a look at the semis always being at Wembley, bring back a bit of novelty to these games? <laughs> yeah, Um I would like to see that, but of course the, the, the FA have got this problem with generating income at uh, Wembley, keeping the whole ship on the road. On the road? No, sh ship on the water. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I can't see them ever really sending the FA Cup semi-finals out to the, um, into the provinces again, although they should. Well, they've paid for Wembley there, haven't they, at this point? How much longer are we going to have to put up with this for? Well, yeah, good point. They have paid for Wembley, supposedly, but uh, they, they, like, they like their showpiece moments. And in fact, all they're doing, of course, is undermining the main showpiece moment, which is the final itself. Yeah, what could be more showpiece than Chelsea beating Southampton? Back in the Premier League, it was Manchester City 5, Swansea 0. This was the triumphant coronation we were expecting from the Manchester derby, really, for City. Four games left for them now. They're at West Ham. Home to Huddersfield and Brighton and finishing up away at Southampton. There are 90 points now. 95 is the record, which feels more likely than not. Do you think they'll reach 100? Yes, I do. I think Guardiola has obviously impressed on them the need to keep going and not to relax with their title win. And, they, they, you know, they, they were knocked out of the, the Champions League by Liverpool, so they haven't got anything else to concentrate on. And those, those records do have a, a certain appeal. And that team... Uh, is good enough to go and just win every game uh, uh, from now until the end of the season and, and rack up some silly numbers. 
Benjamin Mendy back in the action for Manchester City. Uh, he was making absolutely no attempt to leave the pitch afterwards, despite quite a lot of City fans getting onto the pitch. I quite enjoyed that. I think it's quite nice to see footballers not afraid of some actual physical contact with the players, that are the, the people that are supporting them. Uh, what, what did you make of uh, Mendy's return? I agree. Well, he hasn't had much physical contact recently because <laughs> he's been out for so long. So he was probably, you know, craving a hug or two. He's such a charismatic figure. He's the king of social media and uh, he's a wonderful player. And he was he was taken out of that side much too soon with injury. And uh, it's really good to see him back. Do you think City will be kind of looking ahead actively now to next season? And what can they? Do? Where can you go from here uh, domestically? <laughs> domestically, I think all you can do is try and uh, improve the back of the back of the team. Um, so the defence is is better than people think, but th- th- there are still a couple of upgrades I think they can make. They still need another centre half, and Fernandinho is thirty three. Does a lot of work on his own. Uh, too much is asked of him sometimes. I think they need another player in that position to give them a bit more defensive solidity. They might even buy another creative attacking player, God forbid. But I'm sure they're going to be better next season. Ominous. Yeah, it was uh, 1,015 passes attempted today uh, and 942 successful. Both are Premier League records and they've got the top five in uh, in that category uh, for, for other games under Pep Guardiola. Terrifying, terrifying football team. Uh, it was West Bromwich Albion 2, Liverpool 2 on Saturday. Where has this new spirited West Brom come from? Uh, and does it bode well for them next season in the Championship? Uh, it's come from the uh, the disappearance of Alan Pardew, I think. Um, and it makes you realise what a, what a disastrous appointment that was. It also makes you question the players that, that, that they should leave it so late and that, you know, whatever they felt about Pardew... It wasn't really about that. It was about saving the club from relegation and they've left it a suspiciously late. Why would it have got so bad under a manager for them to be playing clearly far worse for one than, <laughs> than Darren Moore? I think once nowadays, once modern players disengage from a manager, that's it. You've lost the, 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 the dynamic and the, and the energy and the enthusiasm and it can, it can happen very, very quickly and dramatically and sometimes the players... Uh, you know, aren't even aware that it's happening so dramatically and then suddenly they find themselves at the foot of the table with a caretaker manager and they get interested again. Hmm. Uh, Liverpool looked a little bit like they expected to win this one quite comfortably. Do you think this was a case of them underestimating their opponents or are they just uh, laser-focused now on the Champions League? Yes, uh, they made some changes, didn't they? Uh, they, they I, I noticed that they really didn't like the suggestion that they've gone back to defending badly. A lot of Liverpool fans were pointing out that actually there were, you know, there were changes on, in the back four, and that the, and that most of the problems have been solved. And I think that's, I think that's fair comment. I think they've improved in that area, and and they will need to have done because, um, you know, Roma are much more dangerous, I think, than many people think. We'll get back onto Roma shortly, Paul. But first, back to the enthralling spectacle of the Premier League. It was Stoke City one. Burnley won. Seventh will, of course, get Burnley into Europe now. Southampton are out of the FA Cup, but it was 11 without a win now for Stoke. Uh, assuming they're doomed, do you think Paul Lambert has done enough to keep himself in a job there next season? Uh, no, I don't. I think that was another unwise appointment. Uh, it, it sort of came about in a in an odd way. They, you know, the job was going to go to Martin O'Neill and that, that went wrong and, and Paul Lambert ended up being given another chance, if you like. Um, and I don't think it's a good idea to give a manager another chance when you're in that situation. Uh, and he's added nothing in terms of results. So, uh, again, Stoke will be looking at their decision and saying, oops. Mm. 
Call for Pardew. Uh, to round off the Premier Why League not? weekend, it was Watford nil, Palace nil. Uh, a, a quite harsh yellow card for Wilfred Zaha in this one, I thought, um, for diving. He was booed relentlessly by Watford's fans at Vicarage Road. Do you think fans can still have an impact on a referee's decision-making? I would imagine so. And certainly, uh, I've noticed that opposition players are, are, are getting some success with putting pressure on, on referees again, which is a bit uh, worrying. And also, uh, if, you, if, 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 if somebody like Zahar is, is you know, saddled with this reputation, it, it, it just gets into people's heads. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he is a diver. I think, he's, um, I think he might occasionally you know, make the most of a, a piece of contact uh, that 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 is potentially a foul. I know I'm <laughs> I'm going around the houses here, but I don't, I, I think you know he's such a quick uh, zigzaggy uh, thrusting player when he hits the penalty area that um, he a player like that's going to make it very hard for a referee to judge whether he's been fouled or not. Looking ahead now, Paul, you had an exclusive interview with Roma's Edin Dzeko in our Saturday paper. What sort of challenge is he going to pose for Liverpool in the Champions League? Is there a player quite like him in the Premier League at the moment? No, it's a big challenge and. I think the fact that he's the number one at Roma, the star of the show, has made a big difference to him. And I think this is part of the reason why he didn't go back to Chelsea. He didn't, he didn't want to be Olivier Giroud at Chelsea, you know, and sort of playing here and there and coming off the bench. He's, he's, the, he's, he's adored at Roma. He's, he's confident. He's in his pomp. I think he's getting better and better. And I watched him against uh, Genoa the night before I interviewed him, and he, he was really impressive. Uh, so I think that Liverpool have, have got to think very carefully about how to stop him. Obviously can't be mentioned in the same breath as the great man, but has he filled the Totti vacuum a little bit in Rome? A little bit. He, he's busily filling the uh, Mo Salah vacuum at the moment, and he did admit that losing Salah had made a, a big difference to them. Uh, but it can't be that big because they reached the, uh, the semi-finals of the Champions League. Mm. What was the mood like generally at Roma? Did they see themselves as underdogs for this game, or are they as happy with Liverpool as Liverpool were to draw them? Yes, they do. But they, at the same time, they, they, you know, they don't think they've sort of um, stolen a place in the semi-finals. They're very proud of that group stage when um, when they were in with uh, with Chelsea and Atletico and finished top of the group. And I think that gave them the confidence to think that actually they're serious European contenders. You know, they're not they're not sort of giant killers fiddling away through to the uh, semi-finals. They 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 quite fancy themselves. And of course. What does beating Barcelona 3-0 at home do to your self-esteem? Quite a lot. It could be the team of destiny this year. We've reached the semi-finals of this season's Champions League and I'm delighted to say broadcaster Mina Razuki is with us now to look ahead to this week's games. Mina, Roma travelled to Liverpool on Tuesday night. Roma are not a team who's going to be frightened by a warm welcome and some fans holding up flares when the bus arrives, are they? <laughs> Doesn't anyone get scared when that happens? Anfield has a way of intimidating an opponent. That's quite standard in Italy, though, isn't it? That sort of warm welcome. It won't be anything too alien. That is true, indeed. You know, I'm sure Lazio have done way worse to Roma. <laughs> <laughs> have Roma faced a side with as much attacking talent as Liverpool in Syria A this season? In the way that Liverpool play their football, no. This is this is going to be an interesting test because I think Roma are very good at handling attacking sides. I think they boast a lot of balance within their within the team. They know how to uh, go forward and, and score the goals, and they also know how to keep a clean sheet and defend and really pull together as a unit, moving compactly up and down the pitch. The interesting thing is is the way the Liverpool attack. They're very direct. So obviously they know Mo Salah, who is perhaps like the 
the man that's going to score all the goals, you know, the, the famed Liverpool player, they know him. They know what they're supposed to do to try to stop him. They've already come out and said, you know, we have no friendships here. You know, now we're going to try to be warriors and opponents. And then when it's all over, we'll smile and nod and, and hug one another. But the, to face such pace, Italian fans always tend to suffer with that. And Liverpool obviously don't care about conceding, so they will go, go all out attack. It's going to be interesting to see what Roma's game plan is. With Elio Di Francesco, the coach says he already knows what it is. He already knows the formation, the personnel, and how it's going to go. So let's see what he's got planned. But he is quite a courageous man, which is kind of un Italian at this moment. Will it help Roma to know a bit about Salah? Obviously, he, he was there in the past. Will, will it help them to defend against him, to have a plan for playing him? <sighs> Mo Salah at Roma is a different prospect to Mo Salah at Liverpool. At Roma, he was the man who delivered for Eden Dzeko. In Liverpool, he's the man that really, alongside the other two, find spaces, you know, try to find the gaps, uh, exploit one another. The mobility between the three is really, truly stunning to watch. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see because you can try to just stop Mo Salah, but then what about the other two? So they've said that they won't do that. They're not going to man-mark anyone. They're going to work as a team to try to close the spaces. I think that's probably the best thing to do is try to close spaces, obviously keep Salah on his, you know, try to get him on his right foot and not be able to cut in or find the right spaces, but force him into trying to keep possession and finding another way through, which will perhaps cause a delay. That's their, their way of thinking. But yes, knowing him is obviously going to be an advantage because they've had to defend against him before in training. They know his move, what he's going to do when he's uncomfortable. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything because he also knows them. He also knows their weaknesses too and the way they choose to do that. Of course, it's a new coach in Di Francesco. It's no longer Luciano Saletti. And uh, they do have a new player in Patrick Schick. And of course, there's also the new Genki, the, the new star, which is Genghis Under the one that Roma really uh, hoping will come through and become their next hero. Edin Dzeko was talking in our newspaper about the importance of the crowd at the Stadio Olimpico. How does it compare to Anfield on these big European nights? Anfield is really, really something special on <laughs> European night. Um, people always used to say that before, but I guess because I, I never really went and that wasn't something I was so familiar with. But looking at what happened with Manchester City, you can really see that it that it, this means everything. Um, Italian sides are definitely terrified of Liverpool. You can tell them it's United, you can tell them it's City, but something about Liverpool is always a little bit more scary because of their prestige, their ability to win European matches. Um, and of course, Anfield, where you know the fans will pull together and do everything to support their team, whether that means, you know, whatever happens to you, happens to you. <laughs> it's your responsibility. The Stadio Olimpico is going to be obviously trying to match it and it is very scary as well. Roma is a cauldron and these fans are passionate. My worry is, is that I hope that they stay with their side throughout, even if they are somewhat um, getting intimidating and getting pushed around. It's important to have them there the whole time trying to make it the cauldron that Anfield is. Bayern Munich host Real Madrid in the second semi on Wednesday. Obviously, uh, and I hesitate to bring it up, Mina, but your Juventus lost in the end against Real Madrid. Um, but were there okay. any lessons in that game for Bayern Munich about how to approach this one? Oh, I don't know. Ronaldo would get there in the end. <laughs> Madrid and European Championships. I don't know what happens to them when it comes to that. I think your best bet is hoping Sergio Ramos is unavailable, but sadly he will be available if you are a Bayern, uh, if you are a Bayern fan. 
this is a side that just has the character to play these big matches and has the character to go all out attack and as well as defend and absorb. What was interesting and what Juventus didn't do well is that on the first leg, they looked very scared of that defensive partnership, uh, especially Ramos. You saw Dybala was too scared to sort of run past him, try to take him on and overcome him. And so you need to play with a lot of courage when you're facing that side. And I'm worried that Heinkes might take her sort of cautious approach. I would like him to play Hannes Rodriguez in a midfield role, play the type of team that he played against Dortmund and just really try to attack the weaknesses in Madrid because that's when they get scared. If you come out and attack them, I, I don't think Bale will play. I think they'll try to do, um, you know, they'll put in Isco, Ronaldo and Benzema up top which is probably their best starting lineup. But with Ramos, they have a lot of character. And with Ronaldo, they always score. It's been 25 matches in a row that they've scored, um, 64 goals in all of them, Ronaldo getting 27. So I can't really see how, I mean, Ryan is going to have to put in a game of their lives. Do we still think Zidane is possibly at risk of losing his job, even if Madrid do get to the final? No, absolutely not. This is a man who really knows how to, I mean, there's always a risk because you never know. They can win titles and still sack their coach. But there is a great affinity with Zidane. He is somebody who's really managed to manage Ronaldo perfectly and allowing him time to rest, allowing him to come back and make the impact that he needs to make in these big nights. This is also the difference now, what everyone is talking about, Lionel Messi and Ronaldo. Messi may be the world's greatest footballer, in terms of technique, but Ronaldo knows how to shine on a big European night. He's a great leader. He can unite the squad. And really, he was the difference against Juventus. Just his performance in the first leg, as well as the second, you know, when it's a penalty, anything that's on his shoulders, he will make the difference. And the fact is, is Zidane knows how to handle him, knows how to manage him. And I think the team just loves at the moment the way that it is, their tactics, their flow, the, the, the squad rotation. I can't see Paris getting rid of him just yet. Two wonderful ties in prospect. Thank you very much for joining us, Mina. Thank you. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast in association with Lion Trust. Specialist investors who help you head towards your financial goals. Independent thinkers who have the courage of their convictions to make investment decisions. Remember, investments can fall as well as rise. Our old friend Zlatan Ibrahimovic made a memorable debut several weeks ago for his new club, the Los Angeles Galaxy. But what has happened since? Broadcaster and honorary American Ryan Bailey is with us now. Ryan, how has Zlatan been performing out on the pitch so far? Uh, it's not been too bad, Tom. He's played four games now. He started two games, the most recent of which was this weekend. Uh, Atlanta, the darlings of MLS, visited uh, LA Galaxy, uh, kept on the wraps. By all, uh, by all accounts uh, in this one, Tom, but uh, obviously still making trouble and uh, still having a pretty big impact on the league so far. It was an, not a fantastic end to his time at Manchester United. He did look quite off the pace. Has, has that carried over a little bit into America? It is a different, a slightly different pace in this league, Tom. It's probably quite a suitable league for him. Yes, he, he is 36 years old. Yes, he's uh, been carrying this uh, pretty serious injury. But I think, uh, taking that into account, uh, he's done very well. And it's quite a physical league, so I think that suits him as well. And as I say, the pace a little bit slower than he'd be used to in Europe. So uh, I, think he's, uh, I think he's going to carry on as he started. There's been plenty of ageing superstars absorbed previously by the MLS. Has the excitement for Zlatan been bigger than for most of those so far? Uh, I'd say a resounding yes to that, Tom. But by example, he played last weekend in Chicago, Bastian Schweinsteiger, Chicago. I think there's been slightly more excitement about Zlatan's arrival than uh, 
than uh, than Bastian Schweinsteiger. Yeah, it, it seems like he's uh, he, he's been doing the media tour lately. He's been doing. Uh, I don't know if you saw there was a clip of him on the Jimmy Kimmel show. He's one of the big late night hosts out here in the states. In which he basically uh, Jimmy Kimmel set, it, set him up for a bunch of zingers, and he just hit, hit him out of the park like he usually does. Uh, he, was, he was also on the Dan Patrick ESPN radio show where he gave a suggestion for his uh, his uh, methods for growing the game in the in the US. I quote here: "I have a wife and two kids. If I was single, I would spread my investment here in the US, and you would have future legends in the soccer." So that's, uh, he's, he's being practical about this too, Tom. He's giving them some ideas too. That's a little bit blue. How's that all playing with a very conservative American public? <laughs> well, so far, so good, I think. I think um, he's, got a, he's got an interesting character as last time, Tom, because obviously we know he's, he's very much into the self-aggrandizement and uh, he's very confident. And let's not forget Americans do like that. They didn't elect a president who <laughs> has those similar traits as well. But uh, I think he's, he's quite endearing with the way he does it. You know, when he's on this Jimmy Kimmel show and he's saying all these extremely arrogant things, he's doing it with a smile on his face, where I think a few years ago he used to be quite straight-faced with his arrogance. So I think, I think the American audience are very much warming to him if they haven't already. Yeah, not many other footballers could have pulled off something like that Kimmel interview. Hard to imagine Schweinsteiger <laughs> exactly. doing similar. Is LA a natural home for him because of that star quality? I think it is, yes. In, uh, in that Dan Patrick interview earlier in the week, he said he's had his eye on L.A. for a few years. I think this is the perfect time. You know, he's 36 years old. I think he's maybe got his eye on, uh, you know, transitioning into TV, transitioning into something in Hollywood. He said he'd like to do, be an action star. He'd like to be someone like Rambo or Born Identity. Uh, I think he means Jason Bourne there as the character name. Um, but he, um, he, so I think that's something he might be interested in doing, yes. And by all accounts, by the way he's settled into this league and to this country so far, I wouldn't put it past him. Is there a sense this is finally soccer's time in the USA now? I think so. I, I, I think that Latans perhaps has joined at a really good time. Um, it, it's, it's really a growing sport. Uh, it's, I think there was a, a survey out recently, a Gallup survey, saying that 7% of Americans named football or soccer, as you will, uh, as their favorite sport. And that's up 3% from four years ago. It's overtaken ice hockey. As the, it's now the third most popular sport in this country, um, NFL, but American football, I should say, and basketball and, uh, and baseball ahead of, um, ahead of football. But uh, it's very much catching up with them. And anecdotally speaking, Tom, I'd say I moved to this country seven years ago. And if I go to the park or the beach, there will be people throwing a football, a differently shaped football. Now, if I go there, they're all, those same people are kicking the ball and they're wearing Barcelona and Chelsea shirts. So I think I've seen a real sea change since I've been out here. And I think, um, you know, it certainly is a growing game as the world's getting smaller and smaller and the US is kind of waking up to the world's favourite game. What about the standard of the MLS? Has that noticeably improved since you moved to America? I think it has, yeah. Certainly since, I mean... It's a relatively young league. It's 22 years old, is MLS. And even just in the last two to three years, I think we've seen a notable improvement. We've seen some different approaches. I mean, with LA Galaxy, they're doing a fairly meat and potatoes 4-4-2 with Latam. But then you look at someone like Atlanta, who they played this weekend, where they've got Tata Martino in charge, bringing in some of, you know, some of the uh, ideas that he's found elsewhere. And going for a very different approach. There's no old veterans like Latan on the Atlanta team. All young players, all mostly from Central and South America. It's, it's very much a changing league, Tom, and I think it's changing for the better. Is it still the MLS that people think is going to drive its popularity increasing in the States, or is it about uh, getting smarter about how they market the Premier League, for example? 
Uh, I think it could be a mix of things. If I'm not mistaken, I think the MLS only makes up about 6% of football viewing in this country. Uh, the biggest league by far is Liga MX. The Mexican League gets about 27%. The Premier League, uh, just a little bit behind that. So those are the and the Champions League, the Premier League are the sort of the big conversation starters. If you talk to a typical soccer fan out here, and MLS, I think, has a lot of catching up to do in that respect. But I think, I think the real difference here, Tom, is that American sports fans, when they look at their NHL, or their NFL, or their baseball, they're used to seeing the world's best pros in their country playing in their leagues. Where that's not quite the case with MLS. So as I say, a bit of catching up to do before. Uh, before it can have a real cultural impact. Finally, Ryan, despite the standard not being quite there yet, are there any players in the MLS currently who are going to the World Cup who our podcast fans might not have heard of who could make a name for themselves in Russia? Oh, <laughs> you're catching me off my feet with that question a little bit, Tom, but why don't we say Latin Ibrahimovic? You might have heard of him, but he has been giving some whispers, particularly in that Jimmy Kimmel interview, that he might be going to the, uh, to the World Cup, despite, uh, I think, the goalkeeper of the Sweden team saying that he, he might not necessarily be welcome in the squad. So let's uh, keep an eye on that situation very closely. All right, Ryan, I'm off to research the Atlanta team. They sound like a great bunch. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Time now for your Hero of the Week, and it won't just be Arsene Wenger waving goodbye to a long-term lover this summer. Barcelona's Andre Iniesta looks certain to leave the club at the end of the season. He scored a rare goal in Barcelona's third successive Copa del Rey victory, helping his team to a 5-0 win over Sevilla. That's his 34th trophy for the club. He left the field in tears when substituted in the 88th minute, an outrageously successful career and one of the most universally admired players of his generation. Paul, what will be remembered as Iniesta? this finest hour? I think the 2010 World Cup final uh, in which the Netherlands decided that they couldn't beat Spain at football so they decided to play them at judo instead. It was an extraordinarily turbulent and violent game but Iniesta held his nerve and held his talent together all the way through that game and and scored the winning goal about four minutes from from the end of um, uh, extra time. And what I liked about it was that Iniesta carried the Barcelona style of play, the, the Barcelona ideal, onto the world stage, into international football in a World Cup final, played beautifully, won the game for Spain, and really you know, declared his talent not just as a Barcelona player, but a great Spain player. And all with the backdrop of a million Vuvuzelas. Yes, that was a bit annoying. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week's episode of Total Football. Thank you, as ever, for joining us. We'll be back with you next week in time for your Monday morning commute. If you would like to contact me, head to Twitter, and it's at Tom with an H Gibbs. Don't forget to subscribe to Total Football through Apple Football or whichever place you like to get your podcasts from. Our theme tune is by Polvo. Head to MergeRecords.com to buy their back catalogue. Thanks to Abby Patterson on the buttons, and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon. The Telegraph Total Football Podcast, in association with Lion Trust, specialist fund managers. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.